America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Essentia Health Foundation. The Essentia Health Foundation exists to make a healthy difference in the lives of patients, families, and frontline healthcare staff in our region. From meals and lodging for patients to purchasing state-of-the-art medical equipment and funding research, the Essentia Health Foundation supports programs that directly benefit patients and families in our local community. If we've learned anything over the last two years, it's that healthcare is critical to the safety and well-being of our community. To make a difference, visit EssentiaHealth.org slash foundation. Again, EssentiaHealth.org slash foundation. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the leader of the pack. And today, our special guest, I'm really excited today. He is a leader of a pack. This is an educator. This is an absolute canoeist and canoeing expert and an award-winning author. And we're going to talk about all of those subjects today. Our guest is the one and only Cliff Jacobson. Welcome, Cliff. Hey, thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. It really is. It really is. It is so exciting to have you here. So we're going to dive right in because we only have so much time and there's a lot that we want to hear about from you today. All right. Cliff. Okay. So let's, let's go back to the whole beginning for Cliff Jacobson. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And, and, and how did you fall in love with the outdoors? Well, I am embarrassed to say that I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is not a place for outdoor guys to grow up in. But I loved it. I mean, I loved the outdoors. I was in the Boy Scouts. And, and every time that there was a scouting, a scout outing, I would start preparing for it literally days, weeks in, weeks in advance. I couldn't get, I just couldn't get enough of the outdoors, even though I lived in the top of a third story apartment building in Montrose and Kedzie in Chicago, Illinois. I hate, always hated Chicago. I always wanted out. I always wanted to be in the wilds. And, um, you know, if you were to, if you ask me, uh, how do you get like that? I think there's another answer to that question. How do you get like that, Cliff? You know, I have pondered that for a <laughs> lifetime and I have decided it's a gene. It's a gene. Either you have it or you don't. You can take hate and you can turn it into tolerance. You can turn tolerance into like. You can turn like into love, but you can't turn hate into love. And I'll just tell you a couple stories just to, to how I got to this point. I, I used to uh, guide canoe trips for kids in the Boundary Waters. We had a program called Wilderness Experience. We'd take them to the Boundary Waters. We had a higher level where we took them to Canada, flew in on a float plane, went in on a train. It was very exciting. Okay, I remember I've had, I've had, I remember this one girl um, and we, and she went on, she was on one of our, on one of our canoe trips. It was perfect weather. There wasn't a bug in the sky. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was perfect sunshine, perfect swimming weather. Every kid was having a good time. She hated every minute of it. What do I miss? Two things, my boyfriend and my curling iron. Seriously. <laughs> I, I had another girl and her, I still remember this is, about 30 years ago. Her name was Teresa Pash. You know, I don't remember this all these years. Uh, she loved outside so much, the kids nicknamed her Injun. They used to call her Injun. We're in the boundary waters with this, with this girl. It's, literally, it's raining bloody murder. I mean, I have tarps, twin tarps set up and everything, but it's raining so bad that it, it's coming and blowing in through the tarps and stuff. And I said, I've had enough. I'm going in my tent. That's it. This, there's... Teresa sitting out on a rock. There's a rock right on the edge. And that's actually about two feet in the water. Great big rock. She's climbed up on the rock. She's got a poncho on her head and she's just sitting there and watching it rain. Now, how did she get like that? It's a gene. I have a, I have two daughters. 
Both of them love their daddy to pieces, would do anything for me. They call me like almost every day. They both hate canoeing and camping. Go figure. Maybe, maybe, maybe you burned them out, Cliff. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, you know, people think you start kids young and they're going to love it. I started my, I started my girls in canoes when they couldn't walk. They were literally nine months old, eight months old, and I, they were in a canoe. They never liked it. Uh, their mother, Sharon, she never liked it. She tolerated, but nope, it's a gene. It's I a gene. Totally well, it. I think you got about two or three of those genes. I, then, I, we, I certainly <laughs> have two. That's for sure. As, yeah. as we get going here, so so your your background is a school teacher. You were an educator. No, well, actually, I didn't start out that way. I was a forester first. I graduated in forestry from Purdue University, had a degree in forestry, and then I worked out west at uh, for Buell Land Management. Okay, I worked out there for about six months. Uh, then what happened was I was also in ROTC, and so I we had the draft in those days, okay? Yeah. And uh, so I got called in, and of course I went on active duty as a second lieutenant, and I was stationed in Germany for two years, okay? So I was stationed in Germany for a couple of years, and while I was there, you know, I was always I always liked shooting when I was a kid, but then when uh, then when I went to college. Or well, when I was in high school in ROTC, then I was on the ROTC rifle team, 22 small bore. And then when I got in college and I still had to take ROTC to fill out my commission. So I was on the college university rifle team. And then when I got in Germany, um, I was in an artillery unit, uh, 105 self-propelled howitzer unit. And then I tried out for the rifle team there. And then I got on the... Um, um, the, the battery rifle team. And then I got on the, the, well, I got on the whole, the, 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 ultimately I just, just, just got on the U S army national team. And then I just, that cut, I did, instead of doing two years in Germany, then I wound up doing one year in Germany and the other year just traveling around with the, uh, U S Europe rifle team, uh, shooting matches. And so, and that's a lot of fun. I probably shot 20,000 rounds, uh, probably, probably, yeah, probably 10 to 20,000 rounds through a pair of M14s and probably another thousand rounds through a 3338 bolt gun with a scope on it. And we went, that was the year 1964, then we won the national matches. And I think, uh, the, I think the scores we shot still stand today because that was the last year we ever used the M14 in competition. And then they, wow. went to the, then they went to the M16. Okay, the M16 is probably a better combat rifle, uh, but it, you get beyond about 300 yards and it's, it gets tough with a little 22, whereas at 308, you'll punch holes real nice at a thousand yards with that gun. But anyway, that's kind of my story. Then I came back and I, afterwards, I came back and I did not want to go back to Coos Bay, Oregon on the coast and be a forester again. I just, it was a tough one. It's very rugged. Being a forester on the West Coast, very rugged. And when I was in the Army, I did a lot of teaching. That was military subjects. And I found I was really good at that and I liked that. And so I said, hey, I think I'm going to teach biology. First of all, I can do that. Second, I get the whole summers off. I can go canoeing. I knew, there was, I knew there was a good gig in and there that's somewhere. It. That's it. If it hadn't been for the summers off, I never could have done the things that I did. How many years did you teach biology in, in school? Well, I taught more than biology. I taught biology. I taught earth science. And I developed this program called environmental science, which was very, very successful. Maybe a little over, right at 35 years. So as soon as year 35 came along and I could get out, man, I was gone. Never regret, never missed it for a second. But, you, had a, you had a full career as a school teacher. You had your summers off. You always yep. loved the outdoors. You loved canoeing. Yep. Now tell us how you fall in love with canoeing and how you become the expert. Because we really look to you as the expert. Well, you know, first of all, I, I discovered a canoe at the age of 11 
uh, in a rustic scout camp set deep in the North Michigan, in Northern Michigan. And in those days we had wood canvas canoes, okay? So you had to do two things with those boats. One, you had to learn how to paddle well or you're gonna crash and burn. Secondly, you had to learn how to repair them because every time you'd go down a river, uh, you'd have a tear in the canvas, you'd have whatever. So you learn both of those things. And I became really fascinated with the canoe at 11 or 12 years old because it was not like backpacking. Backpacking, you're on a trail, all right? You know, other people have gone down this trail, you're following this trail all the time. Well, you could say the same thing about a river, except every bend in a river is new. You know, it's different. There can be lots of people canoeing on a river, but either they're ahead of you or behind you, okay? So you basically don't, don't see them, okay? And when, you, and when you camp, you're like up away a bit. When you're backpacking on a trail, you're gonna run into people. Uh, you also carry less when you're backpacking. When you're canoeing, you can carry more stuff. You can live a little bit more elegantly. But I really became fascinated with the canoe, the canoe itself, what you could do with it, what you couldn't do with it. I was also into sailing too. I did a lot of, uh, we had small boats. I did a lot of small boat sailing too. So that's really how I got into it. And then when I went to college, it sort of faded out. It was always there, it faded out. But it came back after I got out of the army. I was still into shooting, but then I remembered my canoeing days. And uh, a friend of mine, the way we said, a friend of mine called me and he was a fellow shooter like me. We'd you know, go to the range and shoot. And he says, Cliff, he says, I bought a canoe. I said, oh, hey, man, I used to do that when I was young. That's what, he says, you want to go on a canoe trip with me? I said, yeah, let's go. So I went on a, down the river with him in this canoe. And I said, oh, my God, I forgot how much fun this was. I got to have a canoe. And that's how it started. And it started like most people with kind of a pretty crappy canoe, which I thought was wonderful at the time. I loved it so much that when we went on canoe trips in her weather and I took it off my car, I chained it to a tree because I was afraid somebody was going to steal it. Now, as I look back on that first fiberglass canoe, it was a piece of junk. But at the time, I thought it was wonderful, you know, and then it just grew. It just just grew from there. And then I started doing. First of all, I read everything about canoeing and camping that there ever was when I was a kid, not just once, but so many times that I can still make quote from guys like Calvin Rutstrom, for example, who was my hero. So I learned from those guys. And then I started doing this stuff. And I discovered that there were some things that didn't work. And I started reading the newer canoeing literature and shaking my head and saying, you know what? These guys, they did a bunch of research and what they came up with was wrong. They're not spending enough time in the woods. And I, I bitched and moaned about it. And I said, you know, so finally my wife, I was married to Sharon at the time. She says, well, you know, if that's how you feel, why don't you write an article about it? I said, okay, I will. And so I wrote my first article and uh, Harry Roberts was the editor of a magazine called Wilderness Camping. And he picked it up. And then that was just the beginning. And then I kind of made a vow. Uh, oh, then, uh, then I wrote for a few more magazines and then E.P. Dutton, uh, editor contacted me and she says, we'd like you to write a book on canoeing. I said, what, a book, a book? She said, yeah, you can do this Cliff. Okay, and so I did it, but I vowed that everything in that book would be the, from the experience of me or other experts that I knew, okay? And I've sort of kept that attitude through all of my writing. Uh, for example, those people who've read my flagship book, Canoeing Wild Rivers, knows that there's commentary input from over 30 top North American paddlers. So I don't have an, uh, you know, I don't know everything about this sport. And actually, I don't consider myself an expert. Oh, we disagree oh, right, with you. We, we, we all do. No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little story. I would say when it comes to camping techniques, I would say 
I'm an expert. There aren't too many people who do wilderness camping better than me. Okay. When it comes to canoeing, I would say I am uh, a polished intermediate. And so I'll tell you a story. Many I think years, you're being, I think you're being oh, very humble, Cliff. No, no, no. I'm going to tell you the story. So many years ago, I built my first wood strip solar canoe, named it Man Toy. Man Toy. Because a wood strip was a high volume solo wood strip canoe. There weren't very many solo canoes then. Of course, I was teaching, didn't have much money. So, uh, you know, I built a boat. So I, there's a place in Minnesota called Taylor Falls. It's, it's on the St. Croix River. And um, it's a Dells with big high cliffs on both sides. And it's a, a kind of a powerful class two rapid that runs through there. Gets bigger than that when it rains. And, but basically it's a big rapid with big waves. And uh, they had set up, uh, I was there when they were setting up uh, national whitewater slalom course. They're putting up the gates. So they had the gates up. So I was just playing around in my wood, wood strip canoe and um, came to shore. And this young woman, whose name I remember after all these years, uh, I think she had red hair. She was probably 19, 20 years old, something like that. Her name was Kristen Frisch. And Kristen was trying out for the U.S. Whitewater team. And so she says, she says, you know, Cliff, she says, I watch you paddle. She says, you're, you're pretty good. She says, I, I'm paddling solo. She says, but I want to do some tandem runs. She says, would you paddle bow with me in a tandem and we'll, you know, run the gates? I said, yeah, sure, why not? So we did that a few times. And then afterwards, we went to shore. And she says to me, she says, uh, Cliff, you know, you're uh, pretty good at this. She says, you know, why don't you try out? I think you could be competitive. And I said, no, no. I said, I'll be honest with you, Kristen. Uh, uh, big rapids kind of freak me out. <laughs> and she looked me right in the eye and she said, you know, Cliff, you got more skill than guts. Okay. And I value that. I value that because that is precisely how I've gotten down these Arctic rivers and come back alive. Okay. Which means what happens is, is I look at a rapid and I'll say, you know, I think I can probably do that. But no, I don't think so because I got $5,000 worth of gear and my life in this boat. No, we're going to line our portage. Whereas I've been with people who are much better paddlers than me. They just go for it and they get in trouble. So having this attitude has made me very proud. And um, so, yeah, I like being a polished intermediate paddler. Well, we'll, we'll let you be humble. How is that? But well, Cliff, let's, let's, I want to ask you a question here. And, and I want to go back because if we have, you know, we're, we're coming out of at the tail end of COVID here and a lot of people are trying new things in the outdoors and, and, and everyone's being welcoming to, hey, try this, try canoeing, try camping, doing all of this. What advice would you give to somebody brand new who said, you know what, we rented some equipment, we, we, we liked it, and now they, they want to get into canoeing and canoe camping. What, what's some advice you could give for a beginner? Okay, well, first of all, let's define a couple of things, canoeing versus kayaking. Kayaking has become real popular for one simple, basically two reasons. One, you go alone. Number two, you, you, people think, oh, you really don't have to know anything. You just take a paddle and go blah, 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 blah. Okay, and that for most people is enough because that's all they want to do is go blah, 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 blah across a pond or a lake. They don't want to learn any more than that. So that works for them. But they think it's easier than canoeing. It's not. The difference is, is that the learning curve with a kayak is simple at the start. La, 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 la. Back and forth, back and forth. But when you get into moving water, you've got to learn braces and eddy turns and peel outs and rolls. And that takes a lot of time. A canoe, on the other hand, is hard at the start, but it gets easier as you learn. So if you were to graph the, the, the two, 
the kayak would be real easy at the start. You'd sort of bingo, the, the graph is high, and then it gets easier. With a canoe, it's exactly the opposite because people have to start by overcoming the one thing that they have trouble with, keeping the canoe going straight, okay? Keeping it going straight. So a lot of them adopt this, just switch sides. We'll call hut, switch or whatever, and we'll switch sides. That's a racing stroke. But you know what? You got to get beyond it and learn how to keep, keep the canoe running straight. Once you do that, then you start learning a whole bunch of other strokes. So the question is, how do you get to that point? The first thing I would tell a beginner to do is number one, if you have the chance and, and, and there is a, a store or something like that, that has a canoe day where you can go out and try canoes, go to that and learn from them, they'll teach you, all right? If you can't do that where you live, read a book or get or see a video, okay? And you can learn a tremendous amount just from reading a book. Um, example, I don't know, do I have time for an example or not? Absolutely. All right, all right. So many years ago, I was guiding a canoe trip on the Copka River in Ontario. Two of the people that were along were from Switzerland. Now they did, they had never, they had heard of this technique called a back ferry, okay? Which allows you to go across a river, straight across a river by paddling backwards. You, for listeners, you've probably seen ducks do a forward ferry. If ducks wanna cross a river with a current, they, they, go, they face upstream, they turn their little bodies at about a 30 or 45 degree angle to the current and they paddle forward and the ducks go straight across the river. Well, that's, that would be called a forward ferry in a canoe, only we have to do it backwards. Well, anyway, these guys had seen videos about this and read about it in books, but they had never, ever done it. So I said, okay, I'm going to model this. We have to do this because there's a log across this river and it was a rapid. I said, you've got to get over the river right. So I modeled it, went across. They went across, they were a little bit like shaky and they did it just fine. And I remember Oli said to me, he said, you know, he said, I had it in my mind how I was going to do this. And he said, and I, I think I could have done it. He says, but when I saw you do it, he said, yeah, then it set it in my brain and I was able to do it. So you, you can, and another, another example from learning from books there was a book called Basic River Canoeing by Bob McNair. Basic River Canoeing is still in print, okay? And it's whitewater technique. It's how I learned my whitewater technique. And then one day I took a class from the Minnesota Canoe Association and it started out in the swimming pool. And the guy I was paddling with was, I still remember his name, was Al Button. He was on the US whitewater team, okay? In fact, he was one of the first guys that actually use switching sides. They said, oh my God, you never switch sides in a rapid. Well, Al would do that anyway, he's pretty competitive. So anyway, I was paddling bow with Al and he was a big powerful muscle guy. And man, he would, it was it took everything I had to keep that canoe from spinning it around. And then afterwards he said to me, he says, Cliff, he says, uh, you've been in one of these boats before, haven't you? I said, no, Al, I never have. And he looked at me quizzically and he said, what? I said, no, I read a lot. Oh, he just sort of looked at me funny like. So yes, that's how I would start. Because the thing is, if you don't start by learning from either books or videos or hands-on, you're going to do it wrong. And then it's going to take a long time to break that. Okay. You bring up a great point, Cliff. And this is a, this is a good transition for our listeners because you're saying people can learn well from reading and doing like you did when you started. You said earlier, I read and I reread and I read again. And, and for our listeners, I want to read a couple of things here. These are books, folks, that have been written by Cliff Jacobson, who is our guest today. Canoeing Wild Rivers, Boundary Waters Canoe Camping, Camping's Top Secrets, Basic Essentials, Solo Canoeing, Cooking in the Outdoors, Map and Compass, Knots for the Outdoors, and most recently, a fictional novel, Justin Cody's Race to Survival. My count is that there's 10 books written there, and out of those, or nine, excuse me, and out of those nine books, eight of those 
are all things that people can, and we're going to talk where they can buy those and, and, and get those, where they can go learn, read, use them as references to begin, or for, for somebody who just wants to learn more, they can go to this. So let's talk a little bit about, you had said people had asked you to write articles, and then somebody said, write a book. Which one of these books was that first one? And then consequently, you wrote a lot more and, and have become a, a prolific writer. Bring us into that a little bit. Well, the first book I wrote was called Wilderness Canoeing and Camping. It was published by E.P. Dutton Company in 1977. Okay. And then ultimately, um, uh, Dutton, I, I don't remember what happened with Dutton at this point. But then another little publisher came along, ICS Books, and they uh, asked me to revise that book. So what, And then I went from there into Falcon Books. So that book had been in print from 1977 until last year. That's a 35-year run. Then, they, then they, that was called Willis Canoe and Camping, and they killed it. And then in 1984, then I wanted to do... I wanted to do something nobody had ever done. When you write a canoeing book or a kayaking book, all right, if it's say it's a canoe or kayaking camping book, you have a problem. The problem is you have a boat here and you have to teach people how to paddle it. That takes half the book. So now you got the, the and your publisher says you only got so much space. So what happens is you've got this remaining space over here, which isn't very much. You can't say that much. So you can't really say anything different than a dozen other canoeing books have said. So I said, canoeing wild rivers is going to be different. Know how to paddle stuff. There's none of that. You want to learn how to paddle? Get a how to paddle book. Canoeing wild rivers is going to be the nuts and bolts of making a wilderness canoe trip. The things that you find can only find out by going to canoe clubs, listening to, to canoeing and camping clubs, to experts, okay? Um, not just to your own experience, because a lot of people have a lot of experiences that just, they're, they don't work, okay? I get a lot of heat from people on certain things that I recommend, okay? And, and, and they roll their eyes at some of the things I recommend, notably the ground cloth inside the tent, notably the fact that bears climb trees, and there's a bunch of other ones. But here's how, I, here's how I describe that to them so they understand. Um, they just haven't had things bad enough and long enough, okay? Example, let's say you and your friend are out for a drive. Now, you've been driving for 40 years. Your friend's sitting next to you. He's an accomplished race car driver. So you're, you're talking and you're getting this turn and you're going a little bit too fast. So you hit the brakes and your friend turns to you and says, not a good idea to hit the brakes in the middle of a curve. You turn to your friend and say, hey, man, what do you mean? I've been doing this for 40 years. No problem. He turns to you and he says, try that at twice the speed. Okay. So I guess what I'm saying is the stuff that I recommend in these books, I'm going twice the speed. If you're not going twice the speed, those things will work for you. But the reason why we, the reason why people who do these Northern trips, these difficult trips are considered opinionated. No, it's not being opinionated. It's, you know what it is? It's wisdom. We've tried those things. They don't work. This is what works. So the other people say, well, this works fine for me. Yeah, you go to the Boundary Waters, okay? Boundary Waters is a pretty forgiving place. I love the Boundary Waters, don't get me wrong. I go there every year, okay? But what works in the Boundary Waters is not gonna work on a wild Canadian river. And if you don't have those skills, you're gonna crash and burn. That's going twice the speed. So that's how I kind of got, that's how I kind of got into this stuff. I decided to write that book um, filled with things that you're not going to find anyplace else, and they can sort out the how to how to paddle, you know, in, in other books and 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 whatever. And um, I keep learning. Uh, you know, I keep changing every time I do a book revision, like we just revised Camping's Top Secrets. Okay, that just came out. Wow, just came out this month, just off the press right now. That's been in print since what I don't know, nineteen. 
1985, something like that. I don't know, but that's 35 years and, and that book's done a good run. So you keep, and people say, you know, Cliff, you, you, change, you change your mind. You know, it's different in this book than it was last uh, revision. I said, yes, because I'm always learning. And if you don't keep learning, you don't, you don't move forward. So yes, I keep refining ideas. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go into a rant here. No, that's fine, because we can all learn from you because you have more experience than all of us, Cliff. You brought up two things. You said, you know, almost like spoiler alert, bears do climb trees. Well, help us out with that. Well, here's, you know, those of you who have read my books, Canoeing Wild Rivers, and especially the new edition of Camping Stop Secrets has more, more in it. There's tons of information about bears, but it's really, really simple. Bears climb trees. Black bears climb trees and they climb very, very well. Indeed, down if you go down to um, the Smoky Mountains National Park, the bears in Smoky Mountains National Park, they overwinter in trees. They make nests in trees. So, <clears throat> so the question becomes, and federal authorities don't, are going to be real unhappy with me, and they are over this, but it's a fact. If bears climb trees, what good does it do to put your food up in a tree? And the answer to the question is simple. Federal authorities don't care if a bear gets your food or tears up your car. They do care if a bear gets you. So how do we fix that? Well, first of all, you have to remember that you can't come up with this. With some, most people who go to the wilderness, they're not stupid. They just are not at home in the wilderness, they don't understand. So what you have to do is come up with some situation to keep them safe. And the answer is you have people here and you have bears there. If you keep them apart, there won't be a problem. All right, so how do you keep them apart? You can't tell people to walk out in the woods 200 feet and drop a pack because they don't know how far 200 feet is, they'll go 20 feet, okay, or whatever. But you can tell them to put it up in a tree. So if you, and then, then what you do is you make a rule for the tree. Like the limb has to be, I don't remember what it is, at least 12 feet off the ground or something. And the limb has to be three feet out. You know what? And if you go to a place like the Boundary Waters, which is like an, it's an, like an edge environment. In other words, the trees are starting to get smaller now. The further north you go, the smaller they get until you get up into Northern Canada or get in Alaska then you have no, basically you have no trees at all. Okay. And you get on the barrens, but there are not very many trees in the boundary waters that meet the specifications of federal authorities. Okay. Read the print. All right. So which means you can't, you can't find a tree like that. So you're just going to haul it up to whatever's available. Then what happens is the feds are off the hook because all of a sudden, all of a sudden teddy bear climbs up that tree get your pack, you complain to the feds and the feds say, all right, what tree did you have? Where, where, where would you have it? And, the, and that tree said, oh, well, that didn't meet the special, that didn't meet federal specifications. That tree is only 10 feet tall or that, that pack was only uh, two feet out. It needs to be whatever. But the point is, that's all it does. And uh, years ago, I remember giving a bear talk at Canoe Copia in Madison I think there's about 500 people in the audience, standing room only, to people. Like, I want to know how many of you people have had food that has been taken by bears, pack that's been taken by bears. There was maybe mm, 25, 30 people out of that 500 that had their hands up. And then I said, okay, now I want you to put your hand up if you had your pack in a tree when the bear got it. It was something like nine, over 90% of the 30 had their food in a tree. Now, what does this tell you? Okay. It, it tells you that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But people still do it because it's been in the literature for years. And you know what? Once stuff gets in the literature, it's hard to get it out. I have a buddy of mine, Doc Forge, Bill Forge. He wrote the book, Wilderness Medicine. And he tells a story, you know, you remember some of you guys that are listeners might be old enough to remember the back pressure arm lift of artificial respiration. Remember that? We grew up with that. Doc said they knew it didn't work, 
It stayed in the literature for decades before they finally got it out. That's what's happening with the bears and the trees. It's what's happening with pe people, the people who give me grief about the ground cloth inside the tent. Their problem is they don't know the history of tents, okay? Let's, let's go back to the bears though. We'll come to the ground cloth, but let's, where should we put our, our packs? When we're, when we're in the, let's say just the, the, for the people who are going to go to the Boundary Waters, the people that will go to the Quetico, where should we put it, Cliff? All right, you know, the, the, uh, we don't have a lot of time. I would say people read about it in Canoeing Wild Rivers or the new edition of Camping Stop Secrets. But briefly, briefly, it's like this. Here's what I tell people. If a bear can't see your food or smell your food, he won't get your food. Let's talk smell first. People think, oh, a feather drops from a tree. A bear can smell the feather, whatever. Come on. Yeah, they have good smell, but it's not, they're not magical beasts, okay? If you take, if you have a bear a quarter of a mile away across the lake and you're in a Boundary Waters campsite, he, that bear is not smelling your freeze-dried, vacuum-sealed, mylar-packed chicken tetrazzini. What that bear is smelling is you. And that bear says, hmm, people in campsite 21, hot soul, food, bam, and he comes. Now, when he gets in there, he's going to start looking for food. Bears are incredibly smart animals. If you don't think so, just ask yourself why it is that Native Americans wear bear teeth, okay, on necklaces. These animals are smart. They can, they, they teach their children, all right? They pass on stuff, okay? They don't goof up. They don't make the same mistakes over and over again. So that bear learns real fast. And now that bear has, had, has gotten into a pack that had food once. Now he's been operantly conditioned. Any pack he sees, he's taken apart. I've seen him take apart packs that just have clothes in them, never had food in them. Now, if he keeps getting negative, you know, results, then he'll stop doing that. But once he's in your camp, he's going to start looking around for things that food could be in, and he's going to take it apart. Probably and up, up in the tree, right? <laughs> and if it's up in a tree, he's going to climb that tree, or he's going to send the cubs up, okay? And, the, and if the pack is out there, the cubs will launch themselves out like a missile to grab the pack on the way down. In fact, they have a name for these packs in the tree in the Western United States. They call them uh, uh, bear pinatas. <laughs> and that comment is published in my book, Canoeing Wild Rivers, and it comes from um, a, a, um, a wildlife biologist, bear pinatas. Your recommendation then is for us to do what? I would say, if a bear can't smell your food or see your food, you won't get it. So if you pack so you don't have odors and you, and you put your packs where a bear can't see them, you're probably pretty much home free. In a place like the Boundary Waters, I would say if you're worried about it, just set it out of camp under a tree somewhere and forget about it and you'll probably be fine, okay? The problem is, is that people ask these question. I see. I had a guy at Canoe Copia raise my hand and say, Cliff, you should take your food out of camp and hide it under a tree. Question, quote, where does camp end? Where does camp end? Think about that for a minute. Where does camp end? Oh, man, I don't know. You know? Okay. So what's happening is people are looking for a foolproof myth. There's nothing foolproof. Okay. You just do it. You just do the best you can. But people will do a lot of dumb things like, oh, I stick my you hear, I stick my food in a canoe and I sit the canoe out and I tie it onto a tree. OK, oh, that's real smart. Big wind comes along, waves come along. The canoe is going to capsize, going to get damaged. And oh, yeah, by the way, do you ever see how animals travel? Do you even have a clue? They use trails, okay? They have little trails and they have little highways. And guess what? They forage along the shore because there's a lot of dead stuff washes up on the shore. Oh, I got a canoe full of gear, a canoe full of packs, okay? So that's what I would tell prob people probably in the boundary waters. 
And the only reason why I suggest like that is because the bears in the boundary waters are pretty much operantly conditioned to know that food comes in trees, food comes in packs, where there are people in camps, there are food. If you go north into Canada, it's a different ball game and you don't have to do that, that silliness, okay? Let's talk about the, the your tent situation and, uh, and, and tarps and tents. Um, first of all, you have to understand something about tents to begin with. Every manufacturer is um, competing with every other manufacturer uh, to, to get their tents out there. And when people pick up the annual issue of magazines like Backpacker, where they rate all this stuff, and they give the weight and the bulk of these things, a lot of people are going to gravitate to the tent that has the lightest weight and the, and the less bulk. So what manufacturers have done is they, they, they roll these tents up as tight as they can and they put them in stuff sacks that are too small. So they look real small on the shelf. They do things like that. Instead of having what the tent may actually need, eight, eight or 10 stakes, uh, they'll go with half that number, okay? Because every stake you save probably is a quarter a stake. Every stake loop you have to sow is another 10 cents or whatever it is because they've done their market research and they understand that the average tent that goes to people is gonna be used about six or seven days a year max under ideal conditions. And if it's not ideal, they're gonna get in their Volvos and drive home, okay? So first of all, if, if you're serious about the outdoors, you wanna get a good tent, all right? And it's gonna cost you more than what you think. You're not gonna get a good tent for a hundred bucks or 120 bucks, but you can take a $120 tent and you can modify it so that it will work under severe conditions. You'll find that in my books, um, Camping Stop Secrets, um, a little on some in the Boundary Waters book and of course in, in Canoeing Wild Rivers. That means sitting there with a sewing machine for a few hours, okay, to sew extra st stake loops on, after stakes and stuff. Okay. And so you might say, well, why don't manufacturers do this for you? And the answer is because they want to save weight and bulk and money. And if they did it, there would be people who would write and say, hey, man, there's 24 stake loops on this tent. You only sent me eight stakes. What? I need 24 to set this up. Now we got to educate people. Now, failing that, there's one thing that people can do that I will almost totally guarantee you you will never get water in your tent again. It's very simple. You just get a waterproof piece of plastic at your local hardware store. It's the same stuff they put up for painting. I think it's about three mil thick. You make it a foot larger than the tent all around and you put that inside your tent. You do not use a ground cloth underneath the tent. You put this inside the tent and then if it rains hard enough and long enough, I don't care if you got a million dollar tent, water's probably gonna come in your tent, okay? Because you can't always choose the campsite perfectly. All right, if it comes in your tent, it will be trapped between the plastic and the floor and you will stay dry. Now I have lots of stories how this has completely saved my bacon, but we, we basically don't have time to tell them. Um, uh, but I would leave people with this thought, people who are so concerned that I have this $500 tent and I'm going to put holes in the bottom. Well, I'll do you one better, guys. I got a Hilbert tent that's $1,000. That's, that that's the tent that I use most of the time now. Okay, That tent always has a ground cloth on the inside, never, on the, never under the floor. For, for 15 years or thereabouts, I outfitted and guided canoe trip in the far north for the Science Museum of Minnesota. I provided Cannondale Aroostook tents for everybody. Those tents in 1970s were 350 bucks each. They'd be thousand dollar tents today. We always had interior ground sheets. I, ultimately, I sold those tents about six years ago after 15 or 20 years of use. There was not a hole in the floor or one of them. Why? Because when you put that plastic inside the tent, you have doubled the thickness of the floor, okay? And the coating, waterproof coating on the floor is on the inside of the tent. So if you've ever, I wonder if reader, listeners know what a green stick break is. A green stick is you take a green stick and you bend it. It elongates on top, compresses on bottom. It always breaks on the elongation side, never on compression. 
That's what happens when a thorn goes through the floor of your tent. If you could watch this with a microscope, as the thorn goes in, it starts pushing the fibers apart until ultimately it breaks the coating on the inside, okay? Now, put that plastic ground cloth on top of that, uh-uh, it can't get through. And furthermore, without that ground cloth on the inside, every time you shove a ground, every time you shove a sleeping bag in a foam pad, climb in there yourself, you're rubbing a micro thin layer of that coating off the inside of the floor. Now I'll leave reader, I'll leave the uh, viewer or listeners with this one thought. When they coat the floors of these tents on the inside, uh, it's or somewhere around 100 pounds per square inch of water pressure is what that coating is supposed to take, somewhere in that neighborhood. That doesn't sound, that sounds like a huge amount, doesn't it? Well, guess what? Take a 200 pound person and kneel on one knee with all your weight on one knee. Now see what you got. You know what? I submit you're probably getting pretty close to 100 psi. All right. So, if, if so, so the point is, is that camp in a low area long enough, water's coming in that tent. Put a ground cloth on the inside. You will never be wet again. And yes, you will prevent holes in the tent floor. Old ideas die hard. Some of them just won't die. This has been wonderful advice, Cliff, and, and so many people can learn from you just listening today, but then reading your books, and we're going to go through that, but I want to hit one other subject. There's a wonderful pack, and it's a little commercial for Duluth Pack, but Duluth Pack made this pack many years ago, and it's actually in the Duluth Pack store now, and it's affectionately known as the Wedding Pack. Oh, can you yeah. tell our listeners about the infamous wedding pack. Yeah, the wedding pack is a, a number two Duluth pack. It was white and uh, there was a reason for that. When I was guiding these canoe trips in Northern Canada and you portage on the tundra, you really need stuff to stand out. And so we used to actually put a ribbon on there, you know, surveying ribbon, different colors. And so I asked Duluth pack to make me up white packs. So a lot of my packs were white. Well, this particular pack, uh, Susie and uh, Susie decided to marry me on a canoe trip on the Hood River, which is north of the Arctic Circle, and her wedding dress and all this, the wedding cake and all the stuff like that was in this white pack. And so we took off, we flew out of uh, Yellowknife, which then was North, uh, Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, Cavalier Northwest Territories. And when the plane landed, we all got out and unloaded. And Susie says, well, where's the wedding pack? It wasn't there. So she cut a hissy fit and she said, well, I'm not getting married without the pack, without my, my wedding dress. I'm not, I'm not. And so then the guy started fooling around. One guy says, well, you know, uh, we can make you a dress out of the white poly bags. Okay, and another one said, yeah, you can use my head net for a veil. But she was, she was ticked. She was really ticked. And so <clears throat> this was actually the very first night. We're camped in the tundra. Susie is really ticked off since she's, she's saying, I'm not getting married. I'm not going through with this wedding. We had, we had hired, not hired, we'd asked one of the guys on the trip to be a, uh, quote, a wedding commissioner. Well, the full story is in canoeing in the book Canoeing Wild, canoeing Wild Rivers. And uh, he agreed to marry us. She says, no, I'm not getting married. So then all of a sudden, I hear the drone of a plane overhead. I immediately picked up my radio. I had a, um, uh, at the time I carried an aircraft, an aircraft radio. And so I tuned into their channel. I knew what the channel was. And I said, it was a twin otter from Air Tindy. I said, Ertindi Twin Otter, Ertindi Twin Otter, this is the Cliff Jacobson party over. And he, and he came in, he says, yep. He says, hey, we got your pack. He says, you left it on the dock over <laughs> at the loading dock at Ertindi. He says, Michael Peake was a famous Canadian uh, writer and, and paddler. Mike found it and said, oh, gee, Cliff really needs this. I know they're getting married on the hood. Can you deliver it? Well, this plane was, on, was, was, going, on, was going to Cambridge Bay. So he said, well, we just diverted to the hood. And so what they did was they kicked it out the door. Now that's pretty dangerous. You know, you got to open the door. This big twin engine plane is flying. I think it's like a hundred feet off the ground. 
He kicked this thing out the door and it just landed like a missile. The wedding was back on again. So then, and it had a hole in it where it hit. And by the way, there's a patch, as you probably noticed on that pack. That patch covers a hole that when that pack landed, it made that hole in the pack. Okay, so then when we got back, we got to thinking, uh, this is really a special pack. This is, a, you know, I think we should donate this to Duluth pack. And Susie agreed. And so I went, I don't remember who ran the loop back then, but they said that they would take good care of it. And you guys have, and it hangs up there. It's faded. The, the ribbons, which are all white now, are all bright pink at one time because Susie put those ribbons on afterwards. She says, I'm not losing this pack. So yeah, that's the story. That's the story of the pack. So those of you who visit the visit Duluth pack, you see that pack there. Uh, like I say, you can read about it. Uh, you know, you can read about it. The whole story is, is in Canoeing Wild Rivers. It's kind of a magical story. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not religious or, or anything like that, but it's, it's very magical because there were some things that happened that are uh, during that wedding time uh, that uh, we can't figure out that are unaccountable. What, what a wonderful story. And folks, you can find that pack and the picture of Cliff and Susie holding that pack signed and dated from their wedding in the Duluth pack store. It's a special story for us. We keep that uh, uh, away from hands, uh, it, but people can ask where it is and we'll show them uh, where it is located in the store. Cliff, you know what? You, you're such an icon in the industry. You've been on over 40 big expeditions. You've written all of these books. Tell our listeners where they can find your books. They can find many of them at the Duluth Pack store. We have them on our website, but where can they also find them? Your website? They can go to my website, which is cliffcanoe.com. All in word, cliffcanoe.com. And they can, uh, per use them, they can order them there and they will be autographed. Or if they don't want to order them there, there's a link that they can, there's a link right there and they can get them on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, uh, we can, I can't compete with Amazon. They, they can buy the books and sell the books cheaper than I can. So if you want to save, save a few bucks, go on my website, look it up. And if you don't like my price, uh, you know, go ahead, click the Amazon link, you know, and buy them there. But if I may, before we leave the books, I really would like to say a word or two about this Justin Cody book, if I can. This, Yes, please. Well, you know, that book, there's a, I wrote a book and everybody keeps calling it fiction. The fact is, it's, it isn't, it isn't. And that's kind of the problem with, if, if there's a problem, that's the problem with the book. I came up with this idea because I was questioning why all the people we're seeing in the wilderness today have gray hairs. I said, how do I get kids involved in the wilderness? I said, you know, kids who like to read, We'll read. I read all these books when I was a kid, but most kids don't know if they like to read or not because they got their head in their cell phone or iPad all day long. So I said, but if I can write a novel that will be adventurous and keep them really entertained, but surround that novel with skills so that they actually learn skills. And that's what I did. And everything in that book that happens actually did happen. No, not in all one person or one time, but the, everything in that book has happened to people I know. So that's all nonfiction. And the skills are all nonfiction. So when I went to try to get this book published, and I, would have, I thought it would have been easy because I'd authored so many books, I re, uh, publishers came back, hey, Cliff, we do nonfiction. We don't do fiction. I go to fiction publishers. We do fiction. We don't do nonfiction. Evidently, nobody's ever done a book like this. Evidently, nobody's ever mixed the two together. And I don't know why, because I think it's a great way to teach young people. So I would say, you know, if you have a youngster who, who you want to get to learn to really like canoeing and camping, have them read this book. It's written for eighth graders. I used to teach eighth grade. But, you know, uh, sharp sixth, seventh, fifth, sixth, seventh graders can, can probably read it all. But they'll learn the skills along the way and they'll be entertained too. And adults seem to like it too. So that's why I, I did, did that particular book because I'm really concerned that we're just not getting that many young people coming up these days. 
So, folks, we're going to get into the final section of the podcast today, and that is the packed question segment. And we're going to rapid fire these, Cliff. <laughs> what is Cliff Jacobson's favorite movie? My favorite movie is one that most people have probably never heard of. It's called Rabbit Proof Fence. It's an Rabbit Proof Fence. A, we need to go it's look a that true up. True story. It's an Australian film about uh, an indigenous girl and her two sisters. And back in the time when Australia was rounding these kids up and sending them, putting them on a train, sending them a thousand miles away to a school so they could be educated like quote, white people and, and be do household chores. This girl, she was only about, I think 13, if I remember right, 13 or 14. She ran away from the school with her two sisters Ran a, walked a thousand miles back home, living off the land. They were all trying to catch her. They had the Australian uh, police after her. They never could catch her. It's a wonderful story. It's called Rabbit Proof Fence. I, that's my favorite. And what is your number one bucket list item that Cliff Jacobson has yet to do? You know what? I really don't have any bucket list items left at this point. I think I pretty much have done what, what I want, or really what I want to do. My, I guess my bucket list item now, I, I turned 81 this year, is to remain healthy enough to keep doing what I love. So you, know, you can knock me over with a feather, 81 years old. That is amazing. And you know what? You, you live a very blessed life if you say, I've accomplished my bucket list items. You, you, that is, I've never heard that in our podcast yet. Okay. Cliff, your favorite meal on an expedition. My favorite meal on an expedition is not just my, it's my crew's favorite meal. It always keeps coming back to, there's two of them that they love the most. And uh, one is the shiitake ramen uh, soup with hamburger and veggies. Very, very simple meal. It's in my books. Now, all my meals are simple because I used to run these trips for 10 people. When you do, when you're cooking for 10 people and you're above the Arctic Circle and the water temperature is 42 degrees, you've got to use some tricks. Okay. And the other one, the other really favorite one is a steam fried pizza that I make a steam fried pizza. That's in the book too. That takes approximately one minute to make each pizza. And it's better than, it's better than those ones that you're going to try to, to make from scratch as the pizza. Believe it. I, but I, I'm going to have to try that. I'm going to pull pizza. up the. <clears throat> it's very, very, it's a very, very simple. It's fried, but it's steam fried. And mm. uh, the directions are in, are in, uh, I think canoeing, it's in canoeing wild rivers. It's in uh, Boundary Waters. Um, well, I can't even, but it's in a number of my different books, whatever. Yeah. And our last pack question is what's the best piece of life advice that you have ever received? The best piece of life advice I ever received was, um, I think from when Kristen Frisch said, you have more guts. No, you have more uh, skill than you have guts. I think the best advice is, you know, if you down, if you, if you have the ability and you downplay that a little bit, when you are in dangerous situations, you're going to be just, just fine. So that's a piece of advice. Uh, I, I, I really value. Um, and I, and I hope people take that from you when they're on their next expedition. Me too. And I hope that people share this podcast with their kids because you are very inspire, inspiring. You're very excited when you talk about the outdoors and canoeing and camping and getting people outdoors. And that could be, be, be so powerful for young kids to try something different, Cliff. We appreciate it. We appreciate you, what you've done for the outdoors, what you've done for the outdoor community, the camping community, the canoeing community. Folks, our special guest today has been the one and only Cliff Jacobson, educator, expert camper, and above average canoeist, as he humbly <laughs> says, and award-winning author. Cliff, thanks so much for taking your time and being here today. We could go on and on and on. Follow Cliff on his social handles, buy his books, support small business like Cliff, 
and or Duluth Pack and and buy those books so that that he can continue to do what he does. Thank you, Cliff. We appreciate you so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Folks, until next time, and I think Cliff would agree with me, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast. And we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.